Well, when we come to start reading the, one of the Gospels, as we are here in Mark chapter 1, let's just remember that the, the four Gospel accounts that we've got are what I would call transcripts of the Gospel as it was preached by, for example, Matthew or, or Mark, Luke or John. So, as I understand it, after Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, these, these men went around preaching the Gospel, recounting the good news as they had uh, experienced it in the Lord Jesus recounting his life and his teachings his death, resurrection ascension and then as time went on under inspiration those things were written down and, and recorded and so the gospel is if you like the gospel as it's recorded there in, in the gospels all the later interpretation of that gospel, which we've got in the writings of, of Paul, of Peter and John and James later on in the New Testament, uh, that is all true and it's all inspired by God. But the essence of the gospel is the Lord Jesus as a person. And the good news of the kingdom is, of course, what he taught and how he lived. That was the good news. And so there is a tradition that the gospel of Mark had to be recited uh, by heart by those converts who wanted to be baptized and so I would urge us to be centered upon the Gospels that really I think in our daily Bible reading whatever plan we're using to read the Bible if, if we use a plan I do feel that there should be something from the Gospels in our, in our diet as it were spiritually because we are to be focused upon Jesus now, the suggestion that Mark's Gospel was uh, to be uh, memorized by heart is, I think, supported by the very sort of rhythmical way in which it's written. And there's often a rhythm or a rhyme um, between similar-sounding words which would have made reciting or, or memorizing this Gospel in the original much easier. And then in Mark 1 verse 1, in the Greek text, you've got an example. We read in, in English, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But each of those four words in the Greek ends in O-U. Iesu, Christoi, Huiu, Theu. That the O-U is at the end of each of those four words. It's very um, easy to remember. And so... The core of our lives is the Lord Jesus. It's not actually a set of theology, it is the Lord Jesus. We, we may use the, uh, the term the truth, but the truth is ultimately a person, the Lord Jesus. So, so I challenge us, maybe, to seriously consider memorizing a gospel. I knew a few people who, who did that, and one of them was my old Sunday school teacher, Jimmy Evans. And Jimmy was a, a caretaker uh, at a school in a rough uh, housing estate in inner London back in the UK. And Jimmy was not an intellectual. He absolutely was not. Um, so it's no good saying that, well, I'm not that kind of person, I'm not cut out like that. He loved the Lord. He really loved the Lord. And when Jimmy got older, <clears throat> he went blind, and he would be asked to read in, uh, in, in between the, uh, the, 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 the commas uh, on a, a Sunday morning at, at the meeting. Uh, and uh, 
he would uh, walk up there with his Bible and uh, he'd sometimes have it upside down and he would open it uh, because he said you know, he didn't want to sort of show off that he, uh, he, he, he could recite it by heart and whatever chapter you said, it could be Mark 1, he would just read it out, just recite it. Um, and as a child and a young guy in, in Sunday school, uh, we used to say to him at the end of the lesson, Uncle Jimmy, you know, John 3 or whatever it might have been, it could have been Mark 1. And we would follow in our Bibles, this was back in the, uh, the days of King James, uh, and he, he would uh, just, just word perfect come out with it. Now I don't think he particularly uh, set himself down to, to do this. Um, he just loved the Lord. The, the other person I knew who could do this, and who could do it in Greek as well, was Harry Whitaker. You may say, well, Harry was Harry, um, with an unusual intellect, which he... Uh, he harnessed for spiritual things rather than any secular advantage in, in the course of his life. And okay, you can make that excuse. But look, we are all a, a mixture of people like Jimmy and people like Harry, and I suppose we're all somewhere maybe in between the, the two of them. And that leaves us without excuse. That if you love the Lord, if you are focused upon the Lord Jesus, if you are spiritually minded, if you have, as Paul terms it, the mind of Christ, you will have your heart with him. Uh, and thinking all the time about his actions and, and his life. And if you go through my, uh, my, my book on, on Paul, I list there all the allusions that, that I have uh, managed to detect in his writings back to the Gospels, or at least back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think that would indicate to me that John might have been written somewhat uh, later than the other three. And I worked out that once every three verses, and that's by my analysis, and I'm sure there's, uh, there's more there, once every three verses, Paul is consciously or unconsciously alluding to a phrase or a verse or a situation in the Gospels. So he, in that sense, is our pattern to be Christ-centered. So then we, we get moving to the... Uh, into the actual text here and one thing you notice reading through Mark 1 is all the times the word immediately or quickly or straight away occurs all the time it's, uh, it's there in every few verses and it uh, makes a, a good piece of homework maybe if you were to go and reread the chapter and circle them because without question the impression is being given of a very fast-moving narrative. So Jesus was no dreamer, you know, sitting around looking up at the uh, sky and coming out with nice stories about flowers and, and stuff. I mean, his life was packed with action. With, with all the uh, temptations which there are in a busy life, in a fast-moving life, as many of us live, uh, to unspirituality. And yet he overcame that. And I would like to suggest also that because most people in the first century, certainly amongst the uh, converts to Christianity, were illiterate, that texts like the Gospel of Mark would have been read all the time, and that's why they, they were memorized, um, and there would have been an oral performance of those texts. It was quite common for people to stand on a street corner um, for a few pennies, uh, as it were, uh, reciting some, some play or some poetry and acting out uh, some kind of scene from a play or short narrative. And 
It seems to me that the Gospels, and certainly Mark, were designed for that kind of oral performance. And they were designed, of course, to produce some sort of emotional impact upon the hearers. And we who read the same text can perhaps miss something of that, because we are searching it for understanding, to, to understand the doctrine of Jesus, the practical commandments, and that is quite right. But by submitting the text to that kind of close analysis, and particularly with the days of Bibles on computers where you can click on any word and see the original meaning, uh, of course the, the Bible text stands up wonderfully to that kind of analysis and opens up also very helpfully. But that was not how the early uh, Christians were dealing with with the text because most of them were illiterate and the idea I think was that the the audience to those uh, oral performances of something like the Gospel of Mark as they saw it being acted out by the person who was who was reciting it uh, they would have been moved by it to to action for example here in in Mark 1 you've got quite a few references to the emotional state of Jesus Uh, in verse 41 Jesus was moved with compassion and put forth his hand you can imagine somebody reciting this and acting it out on a street corner sort of thing or in a marketplace uh, doing that stretching out his hand then in verse 43 he straightly charged him sternly uh, charged him and sent him away and uh, there's a Greek word behind that which is not really translated uh, brought out in in the translation in uh, in most English versions Uh, and it's the the verb for snorting like a horse now you can imagine the the person who is reciting it uh, doing that or of course when you come to the record of Gethsemane where Jesus is troubled and distressed or in Mark 3, uh, just turn over a couple of pages, verse 5, he said to the man, stretch forth your hand, and he stretched it forth, and his hand was, uh, was restored. And verse 5, he looks round about up on them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. You can imagine the reciter of this gospel uh, looking round about with anger, acting out the picture of, of the words that he's, he's reciting. And so they were preaching Christ. And that was the the centre of of their message. And with all, as I say, our ability to sort of more intellectually, academically understand the text of the Bible, I think we may have missed that. If you get a chance, try to see either on video or live Steve Gretton uh, reciting the Gospels Uh, particularly he does this with parts of Mark and with the Gospel of John, uh, from memory. Uh, He's done it at a number of Kerlings conferences, and uh, some of it was videoed and is, I think, up on uh, on YouTube. Uh, Suddenly, if you look at our Kerlings.net website somewhere or other, you'll you'll see the links to it. And it's really very good, because it's it's a real live attempt in the 21st century to remind us of how the gospel was first preached in the the first century, by somebody having memorized the text and then acting it out. The whole idea was that the, the reciter, the preacher, was being Christ to the world.
And that is how we are to be. I don't necessarily mean that we have to do what, uh, what Brother Steve uh, has, has done for us at uh, conferences and stuff, but in our lives, it should be true that he who has seen me has seen my Lord. Just as Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And of course, in John's Gospel, to see somebody is to perceive them, is, is to understand them, um, rather than just, just physically seeing. So the very body language of Jesus was to be reflected in the, in the preacher, so that when they, they met, as it were, us, they met Jesus. Now that is uh, really important, because we are to be his witnesses in this world. And it's true to say that there is maybe, he, he has no other face in this world, apart from you and me, that by baptism into the body of Christ, we become part of him. And therefore, we are him to, to this world. You may like to just bear that in mind, reading through the, uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, this time round. So then, getting back to, uh, to the storyline, as it were, starts off with John the Baptist, uh, verse 3, who is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way or the path of the Lord, make his path straight. And, of course, this is uh, alluding to those Old Testament passages, particularly in uh, Malachi 3, which talk about God coming to his people, coming near to men in judgment, verse 5 of Malachi 3, and with the Elijah prophet, that is John the Baptist, preparing the way. That is, he was getting people ready to be a path. The paths that were made straight in verse 3 are really the people. And in the other Gospels, uh, it talks about how the valleys would be lifted up and the mountains brought down to make a straight path for him to walk over. I think that may refer to the proud people being brought down and those with chronic problems of self-worth, those who are the valleys, as it were, being lifted up. So that together, we become a path over which the glory of the Lord can, can come to Jerusalem. That's the, the picture really there in, in Malachi. And uh, also I think that in Mark 1 verse 2, I send my messenger before your face. That is quoting Malachi 3.1, but before your face is actually added. And I wonder if Mark has added that there to kind of create a reference to the angel that was sent before Israel in the wilderness uh, to find a resting place. It's very similar to Exodus 23 verse 20 that talks about that. So then the work of John was to prepare in the wilderness people to make the way straight, just as when a, a famous person was approaching, they would clear up the highways, take all the stones out of the, uh, the way so that they had a straight, smooth path to walk over. The implication, I think, is that the coming of the Lord in glory and judgment to Jerusalem depended on whether John's mission was ultimately successful. And you could argue that it, it wasn't really, because the coming of the Lord in glory did not then occur. But the point is, we live in the last days, and this message of preparing the way of the Lord it is the message that we take, and we are also trying to make his path straight. In that, we are trying to lift up those who are bowed down and bring down the proud and arrogant, and make 
people into a suitable path over which the Lord can, can come. And that this would indicate that, in fact, the coming of the Lord is to some degree dependent upon the work of preaching. This is why Jesus said in the Olivet Prophecy that the gospel must go into all the world and then the end will come as if there would be a great and special preaching of the gospel in the last days, which will culminate in his returning glory. It's not that the whole world has got to be converted, but that a way must be made in the wilderness of, of this world. And so that's what we're doing. And insofar as we play our part in that some supportive part in whatever small or great way that might be in the eyes of people we are doing something incredibly significant by preparing people for him and you could even argue that the exact time of his coming is sort of open uh, as it were depending well it's dependent on a number of factors but one of the factors it depends upon is preparing, uh, is there being a, a straight path, a smooth path prepared. Now, in verse 4, we're told that John baptized people with the baptism of repentance. He preached the baptism of, of repentance. Uh, the RV says, unto remission of sins. And yet, Jesus then came verse 15, and he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel well, had these people not repented? it says that they had received a baptism of repentance unto remission of sins and then Jesus comes and says you've got to repent now to repent is essentially a mental uh, attribute, it is to rethink and Repentance, as I think with any uh, spiritual uh, attribute in a person's life, it can be done on a surface level, or it can be the real thing. You know, we can love, apparently, but it's not the love as I have loved you. We can apparently have peace, but it's not the real peace that passes all understanding. We can read the Bible, but as Jesus said to the Jews, you search the scriptures, because in them you think you have eternal life, but you will not come to me that you might have life. So you can read the Bible, but not get it. Um, you can pray. And yet James says in James 5 that Elijah prayed in his prayer. There is prayer and there is the real thing. There, there is the rattling off of words and then there is the real prayer. And so with all spirituality... It's very easy to appear to be spiritual, to, to have a humility that, as uh, Isaiah says, is simply bowing your head as a bulrush, and just when the wind blows past and then it uh, bounces back up again. And then there is the real humility. And so with, with repentance it's the same. We sin and we think, ah, yeah, yeah, no, that, that wasn't good. And there is that momentary sense that I did wrong, and yes, I am sorry. And we, we just... Uh, go on in our merry uh, way uh, and yet that is not the real repentance and so I think these two levels of repentance are significant here it's rather like in John's gospel he talks about how all the Jews believed in Jesus well 
Yes, but it was the same group, it seems, who then shouted out, crucify him. And even if it wasn't the same group, those who, quote, believed in him, uh, certainly didn't believe very, very strongly because he was left alone at, at the end. Now, when Jesus says in verse 15, repent and believe the gospel, you might think he's got it the wrong way round. Why not believe the gospel and repent? Isn't that the order that it should be in? That people hear the gospel, then they repent, and then they're baptized. But he says, repent and believe in the gospel. I think what he's saying is that, yes, we, we repent, we're baptized, but actually our life after that repentance is a life of continued and ongoing belief in the gospel. In other words, the life after baptism, practically, is a living out of the principles of the gospel. And when we did our talks on Romans, we brought this point out time and again, that in Romans 1-8 to you've got a pure, if you like, academic exposition of the gospel, and then you've got Romans 9-11, to the uh, parade example presented of, of Israel uh, as the uh, living example of God's grace uh, and salvation. And then chapter 12 begins... I beseech you, therefore, and the precedent for that, therefore, is the basic gospel of grace that he's outlined so theoretically in chapters 1 to 8, and then chapter 12 to the end of Romans, is all purely practical exhortation, that is, alluding back all the time to the things spoken of uh, in the the more theoretical part of the gospel, uh, of of the letter. So then, Jesus himself was baptized, and of course the old question is, well, why was he baptized? Because it was a baptism of repentance unto remission of sins, and the Lord, of course, didn't sin. So then, why then was was Jesus baptized? Well, I would say that he did it as a sign of personal identity with sinners. You can imagine on the banks of the Jordan, people queuing up. They would have been in lines, I assume. And one by one, they went into the water, were baptized, and like a sort of, um, like a kind of process, like a almost production line, they were confessed their sins, were baptized, and went up out of the water, and then the next guy comes down. So you can just imagine all those people, because it says all of uh, all the country of Judea and they of Jerusalem, they were all baptized of him, verse 5, in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. So you can imagine that line of people waiting there, all kinds of people, secular Jews, highly religious Jews, uh, young guys trying to figure out their way in life, inquisitive old ladies, um, people with all kinds of problems in their past, just ordinary people as well. Um, they were all there with their life stories, just waiting in line. All of them with their sins, with, with their, their burden of their past. And Jesus was amongst them. And you can be sure he waited his turn. And yet, of course, there was no confession of sin. And yet he was baptized. I can only assume that this was to show his identity with us. We who are sinners. And the essence of that, I think, is continued particularly in his death on the cross. That he died the death of a sinner. You know, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
I don't think, incidentally, that phrase in Galatians 3 means that the actual process of being strung up on a tree on the cross thereby made you cursed. It means that the cursed people are hung up on a tree, which, of course, uh, you see several times in the Old Testament that sinners uh, were killed and then they were hung up on a tree as a, uh, a sort of as an example. And so Jesus died the death of a criminal as if he had sinned, although he had not. And so when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We mentioned when we talked about that in, the, in Matthew, in the talk on Matthew 27, that the Lord was so identified with us as sinners at that time that he even felt God had forsaken him. Whereas the Old Testament clearly states, God does not forsake the righteous, but he does forsake the wicked. And although Jesus never sinned, and God, in the ultimate sense, did not forsake him, yet he felt, genuinely felt, as if he had been forsaken. Now, I take that as meaning that he felt a sinner, absolutely, although he had not sinned. And this was the spirit in which I think he was baptized with the baptism of sinners, with the baptism of repentance unto remission of sins. When he had no sin to confess, nor sins to be uh, remitted, uh, as it says here. And in that is a great comfort for we who are sinners, for we who feel that our sin separates us from the Lord Jesus. Whatever we may think about um, Jesus uh, as uh, the sinner's friend, etc., when it actually comes to our personal experience of sin and failure, we can very easily feel that, well, okay, yeah, he was human, my representative, etc., but he doesn't know how this feels. But actually he does, and this was the wonder of it all, that he was identified with us to such an extent that he found this fellow feeling with us, even in our sinfulness, although he did not sin. That, of course, was, I, I think, the, uh, the ultimate uh, achievement and victory of the Lord Jesus. And that is why he in heaven is a matchless high priest for us. That he truly was the representative, and is the representative, of sinners. And that is, of course, why now, as we... We break bread as we, uh, we look again at, at him there. We find that comfort. Even though our sin, our sense of sinfulness is elicited from us by beholding him there, there's also another set of emotions, of feelings, of realization that arises that although I am a sinner, yet he completely knows how I feel. And he is for me. And in that, we can rejoice.